Welcome. You are listening to Genesius Guild's classic drama on the air. This is your host, Misha Hooker, bringing you an hour of audio-only theater. The Genesius Guild is a Quad Cities institution. Founded in 1956 by Don Wooten, the Guild has been producing classic theater every summer since then. Our normal core programming is live theater outdoors in Lincoln Park, next to Augustana College. All our performances are free to the public, and our organization welcomes newcomers, both as audience and as participants. Although we had to cancel our planned 2020 season because of the COVID-19 crisis, if all goes according to plan, we will be back on stage in the summer of 2021. For more information on our past, present, and future, see the Genesius Guild website, genesius.org. Today's presentation is the first in our ongoing series of classic American theater, short plays produced in the early 20th century by the Provincetown Players. In 1915, two Davenport, Iowa natives, Susan Glasbow and George Cram Cook, started a theater group in Provincetown on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, which turned out to have a profound influence on American drama forever. This visionary new company, the Provincetown Players, had humble beginnings in some sympathetic friend's private home. Susan Glasbell had grown up in Davenport, gone to Drake University in Des Moines, and worked as a reporter in Des Moines for a time, before devoting herself more fully to her creative writing. She had published numerous short stories and two novels, and had spent some time in Paris as well, before she married George Cram Cook, or Jig Cook, as everyone called him, and went off with him to the East. Jig, also from Davenport, went off to Harvard for college and studied further in Europe before returning to the Midwest in the last years of the 19th century to teach English and classical literature at the University of Iowa. He had also written fiction, but he is especially remembered as a charismatic personality. He and Susan had known each other for some time when in 1913 they married and embarked on the passionate quest that would transform their own lives as well as American theater. In search of like-minded artists and intellectuals, Susan and Jig established relationships in Provincetown and Greenwich Village, New York. Provincetown was the site of their first home as a married couple, and their lives swung between the poles of Cape Cod and New York City. Jig was the driving force, the leader and organizer, who had the intense Dionysian vision of creating in the United States a culturally and artistically important theater that would be parallel to the great classical drama of 5th century BC Athens. Jig was Dionysian also in his appetites. He imported red Italian wine to Provincetown by the barrel, and sometimes gave names to the barrels themselves, names like Sappho, Bacchus, and, most theatrical of all, Aeschylus, an allusion to the author of the great Oresteia trilogy, one of the most imposing monuments of Greek tragic theater. While Jig's vision was grandiose, the couple's first play, Suppressed Desires, presented a slice of life, a spoof on an intellectual craze that was especially timely, centering on the thought of Sigmund Freud. A few years earlier, Freud had made a visit to the United States, and his theories were making quite a splash, not least among the bohemians and artists Jig and Susan were spending time with, and perhaps most of all with a fellow Quad Cities native, Floyd Dell, a journalist who was writing about psychoanalysis extensively in various newspapers and talking about it constantly to everyone who would listen. The play shows both intense interest in Freud's theories, including a reference to the Oedipal complex, but also playfully bursts the bubble of overconfident claims to understand the workings of the subconscious. Susan and Jig wrote their short play and submitted it to the Washington Square Players for possible production, but it was rejected as had been also a short play by Neath Boyce and a whole set of scripts by a young, unknown Eugene O'Neill. In the end, the next summer, in 1915, Jig, Susan, and Neath decided to mount their own productions of their work at the Provincetown home of Neath and her husband, Hutchins Hapgood. And this was the unlikely launch of a theater company that would change the world. The first performance of Suppressed Desires was a great success and the Provincetown players restaged it a number of times. Eugene O'Neill's material soon found a home in Provincetown, too. The word spread, ambitions rose, the productions moved to a bigger building on the Provincetown wharf, 
and after a couple of seasons there, the company, under Jig's leadership, shifted its headquarters to Greenwich Village. For a few very busy years, the company produced a flurry of playwriting and performances drawing on the talents of countless bright stars of American creativity. Eugene O'Neill, whose work frequently, like Cook's obsessions, drew inspiration from ancient Greece, became one of the most celebrated American playwrights of all time. A few years after the foundation of the Provincetown Players, Jig Cook actually moved with Susan to his beloved Greece, to Delphi, the famous site of the ancient oracle of Apollo. But he soon took sick unexpectedly and died. That was 1924, and Jig was only 50 years old. Susan Glasgow lived on and continued her life as a writer, adding to the mystique of her late husband by writing his biography, The Road to the Temple. In 1931, she won the Pulitzer Prize for her play, Allison's House. She continued writing and publishing, especially novels, until her death in 1948, at the age of 72. Although neglected at times, her work has been revived and celebrated more and more in the 21st century. Among other appreciations, she has been called the, quote, heir to Ibsen and Shaw. By virtue of Jig Cook's vision, Susan Glasspell's writing, and the efforts of countless others, the Provincetown players and their work have truly achieved the status of American classics. Many of the Provincetown shows featured a number of short scripts presented together in a single night of performance, and this program follows that tradition. First on the bill today is that first play written by Susan and Jay, Suppressed Desires. In our performance, the role of Henrietta is played by Maddie Gilotti. Her husband, Stephen, is played by Andrew Bruning. Her sister, Mabel, by Joe Vasquez. The narrator is Kitty Israel. And now, without further ado, we bring you Suppressed Desires. Scene one. The stage represents a studio used as living and dining room in an upper story Washington Square South. Through an immense north window in the back wall appear treetops and the upper part of the Washington Arch. Beyond it, you look up Fifth Avenue. There are rugs, bookcases, a diamond. Near the window is a big table loaded at one end with serious-looking books and austere scientific periodicals. At the other end are architects' drawings, blueprints, compasses, a square, ruler, etc. There is a door in each side wall. Near the one to the spectator's right stands a costumer with hats and coats, masculine and feminine. There is a breakfast table set for three, but only two seated at it, namely Henrietta and Stephen Brewster. As the curtains withdraw, Steve pushes back his coffee cup and sits dejected. It isn't the coffee, Steve, dear. There's nothing the matter with the coffee. There's something the matter with you. Uh, there may be something the matter with my stomach. Your stomach?! The trouble is not with your stomach, but in your subconscious mind. Subconscious piffle. He takes the morning paper and tries to read. Steve, you never used to be so disagreeable. You certainly have got some sort of complex. You're all inhibited. You're no longer open to new ideas. You won't listen to a word about psychoanalysis. A word? I've listened to volumes. You cease to be creative in architecture. Your work isn't going well. You're not sleeping well. Uh, how can I sleep, Henrietta, when you're always waking me up in the middle of the night to find out what I'm dreaming? But dreams are so important, Steve. There's nothing wrong with me. You don't even talk as well as you used to. Talk? I, I can't say a thing without you looking at me in that dark fashion you have when you're on the trail of a complex. This very irritability indicates that you're suffering from some suppressed desire. I'm suffering from a suppressed desire for a little peace. Dr. Russell is doing simply wonderful things with nervous cases. Won't you go to him, Steve? No, Henrietta, I won't. But, Stephen... I hear Mabel coming. Let's not be at each other's throats the first day of her visit. He takes out some cigarettes. Enter Mabel from door left, the side opposite Steve so that he is facing her. She's wearing a rather fussy negligee and breakfast cap in contrast to Henrietta, who wears radical clothes. Good morning. Oh, here you are, little sister. Good morning, Mabel. Mabel nods to him and turns, her face lighting up to Henrietta. Henrietta gives Mabel a hug as she leans against her. It's so good to have you here. 
It's good to be here with you. I was going to let you sleep, thinking you'd be tired after the long trip. Sit down. There'll be fresh toast in a few minutes, and will you have... Oh, I ought to have told you, Henrietta. Don't get anything for me. I'm not eating any breakfast. Not eating breakfast? She sits down, then leans toward Mabel and scrutinizes her. The psychoanalytical look. Mabel, why are you not eating any breakfast? Why, no particular reason. I just don't care much for breakfast, and they say it keeps down... Well, that is, it's a good thing to go without it. Don't you sleep well? Did you sleep well last night? Oh, yes, I slept all right. Yes, I slept fine last night, only I did have the funniest dream. <laughs> and what did you dream, Mabel? Looky here, Mabel. I, I feel it's my duty to put you on. Don't tell Henrietta your dreams. If you do, she'll find out that you have an underground desire to kill your father and marry your mother. Don't be absurd, Stephen Brewster. What was your dream, dear? <laughs> well, I dreamed I was a hen. A hen? A hen? Yes, and I was pushing along through a crowd as fast as I could, but being a hen, I couldn't walk very fast. It was like having a tight skirt, you know, and there was some sort of creature in a blue cap. You know how mixed up dreams are. And it kept shouting after me and saying, Step hen! Step hen! Until I got all excited and I just couldn't move at all. Henrietta rests her chin in her palm and peers. You say you became much excited. Oh, yes, I was in a terrible state. This is significant. She dreams she's a hen. She is told to step lively. She becomes violently agitated. What can it mean? Mabel, do you know anything about psychoanalysis? Oh, not much. No, I... It's something about the war, isn't it? Not that kind of war. I thought it might be some sort of new explosive. It is. You see, Henrietta, I... We do not live in touch with intellectual things as you do. Bob being a dentist, somehow, our friends. Oh, to be a dentist. He goes to the window and stands looking out. Don't you ever see anything more of that editorial writer? What, what was his name? Lyman Eggleston? Yes, Eggleston. He was in touch with things. Don't you see him? Yes, I see him once in a while. Bob doesn't like him very well. Your husband does not like Lyman Eggleston? Mabel, are you perfectly happy with your husband? Oh, come now, Henrietta. That's going a little strong. Are you perfectly happy with him, Mabel? Why, yes, I guess so. Why, of course I am. Are you happy? Or do you only think you are? Or do you only think you ought to be? Why, Henrietta, I don't know what you mean. Steve seizes a stack of books and magazines and dumps them on the breakfast table. This is what she means, Mabel. Psychoanalysis. My work table groans with it. Books by Freud, the new messiah. Books by Jung, the new St. Paul. The psychoanalytical review, back numbers 250 per. But what is it all about? All about your sub on non-conscious mind and desires you know not of. They may be doing you a great deal of harm. You may go crazy with them. Oh yes, people are doing it right and left. You're dreaming you're a hen. But what do you say it is, Henrietta? Oh, if Henrietta's gonna start that. He goes to his work table, and during Henrietta's next speech, he settles himself and sharpens a lead pencil. It's like this, Mabel. You want something. You think you can't have it. You think it's wrong. So you try to think you don't want it. Your mind protects you, avoids pain by refusing to think the forbidden thing. But it's there just the same. It stays there, shut up in your unconscious mind, and it festers. Sort of an ingrowing mental toenail. Precisely. The forbidden impulse is there full of energy which has simply got to do something. It breaks into your consciousness in disguise, masks itself in dreams, makes all sorts of trouble. In extreme cases, it drives you insane. Oh! But psychoanalysis has found out how to save us from that. It removes the obstruction, brings into consciousness the suppressed desire that was making all the trouble. In a word, psychoanalysis is simply the latest scientific method of preventing and curing insanity. It's also the latest scientific method of separating families. Families that ought to be separated. The Dwights, for instance. You must have met them, Mabel, uh, when you were here before. Helen was living, apparently, in peace and happiness with good old Joe. Well, she went to this psychoanalyzer, she was psyched, and biff, bang, she comes home with an unsuppressed desire to leave her husband. He starts work, drawing lines on a drawing board with a T-square. How terrible! Yes, I remember Helen Dwight. But, but did she have such a desire? 
Or she'd known of it. And she left him? Yes, she did. Wasn't he good to her? Why, yes, good enough. Wasn't he kind to her? Oh, yes, kind to her. And she left her good, kind husband? Oh, Mabel left her good, kind husband? How naive. Forgive me, dear, but how bourgeois you are. She came to know herself. She had the courage. I may be naive and bourgeois, but I don't see the good of a new science that breaks up homes. In enlightening Mabel, we mustn't neglect to mention the case of Art Holden's private secretary, Mary Snow, who has just been informed of her suppressed desire for her employer. Why, I think it is terrible, Henrietta. It would be better if we didn't know such things about ourselves. No, Mabel, that is the old way. But, but her employer? Is he married? <laughs> Wife and four children. Well then, what good does it do to the girl to be told she has a desire for him? There's nothing that can be done about it. Old institutions will have to be reshaped so that something can be done in such cases. It happens, Mabel, that this suppressed desire was on the point of landing Mary Snow in the insane asylum. Are you so tight-minded that you'd rather have her in the insane asylum than break the conventions? But, but have people always had these awful suppressed desires? Always. But they've just been discovered. The harm they do has just been discovered. And free, sane people must face the fact that they have to be dealt with. I don't believe they have them in Chicago. People have them wherever the living libido, the center of the soul's energy, is in conflict with petrified moral codes. That means everywhere in civilization. Psychoanalysis Good is- God. I've got the roof in the cellar. The roof in the cellar. That's what psychoanalysis could undo. Is it any wonder I'm concerned about Steve? He dreamed the other night that the walls of his room melted away and he found himself alone in a forest. Don't you see how significant it is for an architect to have walls slip away from him like that? It symbolizes his loss of grip in his work. There's some suppressed desire there. Suppressed hell. You speak more truly than you know. It is through suppressions that hells are formed in us. Mabel looks at Steve, who is tearing his hair. Don't you think it would be a good thing, Henrietta, if we went somewhere else? They rise and begin to pick up the dishes. Mabel drops a plate, which breaks. Henrietta draws up short and looks at her. The psychoanalytic look. I'm sorry, Henrietta. One of the spode plates, too. Don't take it so to heart, Henrietta. I can't help taking it to heart. I'll get you another. I said I'll get you another plate, Henrietta. It's not the plate. For heaven's sake, what is it then? It's the significant little false movement once in a while. Well, I suppose everyone makes a false movement once in a while. Yes, Mabel, but these false movements all mean something. I don't think that's very nice. It was just because I happened to think of Mabel Snow you were talking Mabel about. Mabel Snow? Snow, Snow, well, what's her name then? Her name is Mary. Well, Mary Snow then, Mary Snow. I never heard her name but once. I don't see anything to make such a fuss about. Mabel, dear, mistakes like that in names. They don't mean something, do they? I am sorry, but they do. But I am always doing that. My poor little sister, tell me about it. About what? About your not being happy. About your yearnings for another sort of life. But I don't. Uh, I understand these things, dear. You feel Bob is limiting you to a life which you do not feel free. Henrietta, when did I ever say such a thing? You said you are not in touch with things intellectual. You showed your feelings that it is Bob's profession that has engendered a resentment which has colored your whole life with him. Why, Henrietta! Don't be afraid, little sister. There's nothing can shock me or turn me from you. I am not like that. I wanted you to come for this visit because I had the feeling that you needed more from life than you were getting. No one of these things I have seen would excite my suspicion. It's the combination. You don't eat breakfast. You make false moves. You substitute your own name for the name of another whose love is misdirected. You're nervous. You look queer. In your eyes, there's a frightened look that's most unlike you. And this dream. A hen. Come with me this afternoon to Dr. Russell. Your whole life may be at stake, Mabel. Henrietta, I... you... You always were the smartest in the family and all that, but this is terrible. I don't think we ought to think such things, and... Why, I'll tell you why I dreamed I was a hen. It was because last night, telling about that time in Chicago, you said I was as mad as a wet hen. Did you dream you were a wet hen? No. No. You dreamed you were a dry hen. And why, being a hen, were you urged to step? Maybe it's because when I am getting on a streetcar, it always irritates me to have them call, Step Lively. No, Mabel, that is only a child's view of it. 
if you will forgive me. You see merely the elements used in the dream. You do not see into the dream. You do not see its meaning. This dream of the hen. Hen, hen, wet hen, dry hen, mad hen. Let me out of this. Henrietta hastily picks up the dishes. Just a minute, dear, and we'll have things so you can work in quiet. Mabel and I are going to sit in my room. She goes out with both hands full of dishes. Steve seizes his hat and coat from the costumer. I'm going to be psychoanalyzed. I'm going now. I'm going straight to that infallible doctor of hers, that priest of this new religion. If he's got honesty enough to tell Henrietta there's nothing matter with, with my unconscious mind, perhaps I can be let alone about it, and then I will be all right. Don't tell Henrietta I'm going. It might take weeks, and I couldn't stand all the talk. Enter Henrietta. Where's Steve? Gone? You see how impatient he is? How unlike himself? I tell you, Mabel, I am nearly distracted about Steve. I think he's a little distracted, too. Well, if he's gone, you might as well stay in this room. I have a committee meeting at the bookshop, and we'll have to leave you to yourself for an hour or two. As she puts her hat on, her eye, lighting up almost carnivorously, falls on an enormous volume on the floor beside the work table. The book has been half hidden by the wastebasket. She picks it up and carries it around the table toward Mabel. Here, dear, this is one of our simplest statements of psychoanalysis. You read it, and then we can talk more intelligently. Mabel takes the volume and staggers back under its weight to the chair rear center. Henrietta goes to the outer door and stops. How old is Lyman Eggleston? He isn't 40 yet. Why? What made you ask that, Henrietta? As she turns her head to look at Henrietta, her hands move toward the upper corners of the book balanced on her knees. Oh, nothing. Au revoir. Mabel stares at the ceiling. The book slides to the floor. She starts, looks at the book, then at the broken plate on the table. The plate. The book. She lifts her eyes, leans forward, elbow on knee, chin on knuckles, and plaintively queries, Am I unhappy? table has been removed and set back against the wall. During the first few minutes, the dusk of a winter afternoon deepens. Out of the darkness spring rows of double street lights almost meeting in the distance. Henrietta is disclosed at the psychoanalytical end of Steve's work table. Surrounded by open books and periodicals, she is writing. Steve enters briskly. What are you doing, my dear? My paper for the Liberal Club. Your paper on... On a subject which does not have your sympathy. Oh, I'm not sure I'm wholly out of sympathy with psychoanalysis, Henrietta. You worked it so hard, I couldn't even take a bath without it meaning something. I talked it because I knew you needed it. You haven't said much about it the last two weeks. Uh, your faith in it hasn't weakened any. Weakened? It's grown stronger with each new thing I've come to know. And Mabel. She is with Dr. Russell now. Dr. Russell is wonderful. From what Mabel tells me, I believe he is going to prove that I was right. Today, I discovered a remarkable confirmation of my theory in the hen dream. What is your theory? Well, you know about Lyman Eggleston. I've wondered about him from the first. I've never seen him, but I know he's less bourgeois than Mabel's other friends, more intellectual, and she doesn't see much of him because Bob doesn't like him. But what's the confirmation? Today, I noticed the first syllable of his name. Lie? No. Egg. Egg? Mabel dreamed she was a hen. <laughs> you wouldn't laugh if you knew how important names are in interpreting dreams. Freud is full of just such cases in which a whole hidden complex is revealed by a single significant syllable, like this egg. Doesn't the traditional relation of a hen and egg suggest rather a maternal feeling? There is something maternal in Mabel. Love, of course, but that's the only element. Well, suppose Mabel hasn't a suppressed desire to be this gentleman's mother, but his beloved. What's to be done about it? What about Bob? Don't you think it's going to be a little rough on him? That can't be helped. Bob, like everyone else, must face the facts of life. 
If Dr. Russell should arrive independently at this same interpretation, I shall not hesitate to tell Mabel to leave her present husband. Um. Mm. The lights go up on Fifth Avenue. Steve goes to the window and looks out. How long is it we've lived here, Henrietta? Why, this is the third year, Steve. I, we, one would miss this view if one went away, wouldn't one? How strangely you speak. Oh, Stephen, I wish you'd go to Dr. Russell. Don't think my fears have abated because I have been able to restrain myself. I felt I must on account of Mabel. It wouldn't do for her to hear you discrediting it while she's being analyzed. But now, dear, won't you go? I... He breaks off. Turns on the light, then comes and sits beside Henrietta. How long have we been married, Henrietta? Stephen, I don't understand you. You must go to Dr. Russell. I have gone. You what? Yes, Henrietta. I've been psyched. You went to Dr. Russell? The same. And what did he say? He said... I... I, I was a little surprised by what he said, Henrietta. Of course, one can so seldom anticipate. But tell me, your dream, Stephen... It means... It means... I was considerably surprised by what it means. Don't be so exasperating. It means... You really want to know, Henrietta? Stephen, you will drive me mad. He said... Of course, he may be wrong in what he said. He isn't wrong. Tell me. He said my dream of the walls receding and leaving me alone in a forest indicates a suppressed desire... Yes? Yes? To be freed from... Yes, freed from... Marriage. Marriage? He... He may be mistaken, you know. May be mistaken. I... Well, of course. I haven't taken any stock in it myself. It was only your great confidence Stephen, are you telling me that Dr. Russell, Dr. A.R. Russell, told you this? Told you you have a suppressed desire to separate from me? That's what he said. Did he know who you were? Yes. That you were married to me? Yes, he knew that. And he told you to leave me? It seems he must be wrong, Henrietta. And I have sent him more patience. What reason did he give you for this analysis? He says the confiding walls are, are a symbol of my feeling about marriage, and that their fading away is a wish fulfillment. Well, is it? Do you want our marriage to end? Well, it was a surprise to me that I did, Henrietta. A, a great surprise. You see, I, I hadn't known what was in my unconscious mind. What did you tell Dr. Russell about me? What did you tell him to make him think you were not happy? I never told him a thing, Henrietta. He got it all from his confound, clever inferences. I, I tried to refute them, but he said that was only part of my self-protective lying. And that's why you were so happy when you came in just now. Why, Henrietta, how can you say such a thing? I was sad. Didn't I speak sadly of, of the view? Didn't I ask you how long we had been married? Stephen Brewster, have you no sense of the seriousness of this? Dr. Russell doesn't know what our marriage has been. You do. You should have laughed him down, confined in life with me. Why didn't you tell him that I believed in freedom? I very emphatically told him that his results were a great surprise to me. But you accepted them. Oh, not at all. I merely couldn't refute his arguments. I'm not a psychologist. I came home to talk it over with you. You being a disciple of psychoanalysis. If you are going, I wish you would go tonight. Oh, my dear. I, I surely couldn't do that. Think of my feelings. And my laundry hasn't come home yet. I ask you to go tonight. Some women would falter at this, Steve, but I am not such a woman. I leave you free. I do not repudiate psychoanalysis. I say again that it has done great things. It has also made mistakes, of course, but since you accept this analysis... She sits down and pretends to begin work. I have to finish this paper. I wish you would leave me. Steve scratches his head and goes to the inner door. I'm sorry, Henrietta, about my unconscious mind. Henrietta's face betrays her outraged state of mind, disconcerted, resentful, trying to pull herself together. She attains an air of bravely bearing an outrageous thing. Mabel enters in great excitement. Henrietta, I'm so glad you're here. And alone? Are, are you alone, Henrietta? Very much so. Henrietta, he's found it. Who has found what? Who has found what? 
Dr. Russell has found my suppressed desire. That is interesting. He finished with me today. He got hold of my complex in the most amazing way. But, oh, Henrietta, it is so terrible. Do calm yourself, Mabel. Surely there's no occasion for all this agitation. But there is. And when you think of the lives that are affected, the readjustments that must be made in order to bring the suppressed hell out of me and save me from the insane asylum- The insane asylum? You said that's where these complexes brought people. What did the doctor tell you, Mabel? Oh, I don't know how I can tell you. It is so awful, so unbelievable. Henrietta, who would have ever thought it? How can it be true? But the doctor is perfectly certain that I have a suppressed desire for... Oh, go on, Mabel. I'm not unprepared for what you have to say. Not unprepared? You mean you have suspected it? From the first. It's been my theory all along. But Henrietta, I didn't know myself that I had the secret desire for Stephen. Stephen? My brother-in-law. My own sister's husband. You have a suppressed desire for Stephen. Oh, Henrietta, aren't these unconscious selves terrible? They seem so unlike us. What insane things are you driving at? Henrietta, don't you use that word to me. I don't want to go to the insane asylum. What did Dr. Russell say? Well, you see, it's the strangest thing. But you know the voice in my dream that called, Steph, Hen! Dr. Russell found out today that when I was a little girl, I had a storybook in words of one syllable, and I read the name Stephen wrong. I used to read it S-T-E-P, Step, H-E-N, Hen. Step Hen is Stephen. Enter Stephen, his head bent over a timetable. Stephen is Step Hen! I, Step Hen? S-T-E-P, Step, H-E-N, Hen, Stephen. Well, what if Stephen is Step Hen? Step Hen! Step Hen! For that ridiculous coincidence. Coincidence? But it's so childish to look at the mere elements of a dream. You have to look into it. You have to see what it means. And do you mean to say that on account of that trivial, meaningless play on syllables, on that flimsy basis, you are ready? Oh! What on earth's the matter? What has happened? S suppose I am Step Hen. What about it? What does it mean? It means that I have a suppressed desire for you. For me? The, the deuce you have. What uh, makes you think so? Dr. Russell has worked it out scientifically. Yes, through the amazing discovery that step hen equals Stephen. That isn't all. That isn't near all. Henrietta won't give me a chance to tell it. She'd rather I'd go to the insane asylum than be unconventional. We'll all go there if you can't control yourself. We are still waiting for some rational report. Mabel dries her eyes. Oh, there's such a lot about names. I don't see how I ever did it. It all works in together. I dreamed I was a hen because that's the first syllable of Henrietta's name. And when I dreamed I was a hen, I was putting myself in Henrietta's place. With Stephen? With Stephen. Oh! What are you doing with that timetable? Why, I thought... You were so keen to have me go tonight, I thought I'd just take a run up to Canada and join Billy. A little shooting, but... But there's more about the names. Mabel, have you thought about Bob? Dear old Bob, your good, kind husband? Oh, Henrietta, my good, kind husband. Just think of him out there in Chicago, working his head off, fixing people's teeth. For you. Yes, but think of the living libido in conflict with petrified moral codes. And think of the perfectly wonderful way the names all prove it. Dr. Russell said he's never seen anything more convincing. Just look at Stephen's last name, Brewster. I dream I'm a hen, and the name Brewster, you have to say its first letter by itself, and then the hen, that's me, she says to him, Stephen B. Rooster. Henrietta and Stephen both collapse on the chair and dive in. I think it's perfectly wonderful. Why, if it wasn't for psychoanalysis, you'd never find out how wonderful your own mind is. <laughs> be Rooster. Stephen, be Rooster. You think it's funny, do you? Well, what's to be done about it? Does Mabel have to go away with me? Do you want Mabel to go away with you? Well, but Mabel herself, her complex, her suppressed desire... Mabel... Mabel, are you going to insist on going away with Stephen? I'd rather go with Stephen than go to the insane asylum. For heaven's sake, Mabel, drop that insane asylum. If you did have a suppressed desire for Stephen hidden away in you, God knows it isn't hidden now, 
Dr. Russell has brought it into consciousness with a vengeance. That's all that's necessary to break up a complex. Psychoanalysis doesn't say you have to gratify every suppressed desire. Unless it's for Lyman Eggleston. Well, if it comes to that, Stephen Brewster, I'd like to know why that interpretation of mine isn't as good as this one. But, Step hen. But B. Rooster. <laughs> Step hen. B. Rooster and Henrietta Shaw. <laughs> My dear, Doc Russell's got you beat by a mile. <laughs> B. Rooster. What has Lyman Eggleston got to do with it? According to Henrietta's interpretation, you, the hen, have a suppressed desire for Lyman Eggleston, the egg. Henrietta, I think that's indecent of you. He is bald as an egg and little and fat. The idea of you thinking such a thing of me. Well, Bob isn't little and bald and fat. Why don't you stick to your own husband? She turns on Stephen. What if Dr. Russell's interpretation has got mine beat by a mile? It would only mean that Mabel doesn't want Eggleston and does want you. Does that mean she is to have you? But you said Mabel Snow. Mary Snow! You're not as much like her as you think, substituting your name for hers. The cases are entirely different. Oh, I wouldn't have believed this of you, Mabel. I brought you here for a pleasant visit. Thought you'd needed brightening up. Wanted to be nice to you, and now, my husband, you insist. She begins to cry. She makes a movement which brushes to the floor some sheets from the psychoanalytical table. Careful, dear. Your paper on psychoanalysis. He gathers up the sheets and offers them to her. I don't want my paper on psychoanalysis. I'm sick of psychoanalysis. Do you mean that, Henrietta? Why shouldn't I mean it? Look at all that I've done for psychoanalysis. And what has psychoanalysis done for me? Do you mean, Henrietta, that you're going to stop talking psychoanalysis? Why shouldn't I stop talking it? Haven't I seen what it does to people? Mabel has gone crazy about psychoanalysis. Mabel sinks with a moan into the armchair and buries her face in her hands. I'm done with it. Do you swear never to wake me up in the night to find out what I'm dreaming? Dream what you please. I don't care what you're dreaming. Will you clear off my work table so that the Journal of Morbid Psychology doesn't stare me in the face when I'm trying to plan a house? I'll burn the Journal of Morbid Psychology. My dear Henrietta, if you're going to separate from psychoanalysis, there's no reason why I should separate from you. They embrace ardently. Mabel lifts her head and looks at them woefully. But what about me? What am I to do with my suppressed desire? With one arm still around Henrietta, Steve gives Mabel a brotherly hug. Mabel, you just keep right on suppressing it. The second play on today's bill is a shorter script entitled The Game, a morality play, a highly stylized symbolic meditation on the human condition by Louise Bryant, a journalist and feminist activist who arrived on the scene fresh from Portland, Oregon, brought out to the East Coast by a burgeoning love affair with Oregon native John Reed. He described her as, quote, an artist, a rampant, joyous individualist, a poet, and a revolutionary. This script was written and first staged by the Provincetown Players in 1916, with World War I raging in Europe, the horror and ravages of war looming on the horizon, along with the personal dramas of romantic relationships, such as that of Louise Bryant and John Reed, were the large-scale and small-scale backdrops for the piece, which features a personified life and death, playing their game with the lives and deaths of human beings, such as the poet and the dancer who meet under their supervision. In today's program, Life is played by Angela Rathman, Death by Mike Karen, Youth, the Poet, by Andrew Calder, and The Girl, the Dancer, by Brianna Gray. The narrator is Kathy Calder. And now, without further ado, we bring you The Game. 
rise, death is lying on the ground at left, idly flipping dice. Now and then, he glances sardonically at life, who is standing at the extreme right and counting aloud. 50,000, 51, 65, 90, 37, Come, come, wife. Forget your losses. It's no fun playing with a dull partner. I had hoped for a good game tonight, although there is little in it for me. Just a couple of suicides. My dear Death, I wish you would grant me a favor. A favor? A favor? Now isn't that just like a woman? I never saw one yet who was willing to abide by the results of a fair game. But I want these two. Whether I win or lose, I really must have them. They are geniuses, and you know how badly I am in need of geniuses right now. Ungrateful, spoiled children. They always want to commit suicide over their first disappointment. How many times must I tell you that the game must be played? It's the law. You know it as well as I do. Oh, the law. Laws are always in your favor, Death. There you are. I always said the universe would be in a wild state of disorder if the women had any say. No, you must play the game. Who ever said anything about not playing? All I want is your consent to let them meet here before the game begins. I'll bet this isn't so innocent as it sounds. Who are they? I haven't paid much attention to the case. Youth and the girl. He is a poet, and she a dancer. A strong man and a beautiful woman. <laughs> Up to the same old tricks, eh? You sly thing. You think if they meet, they'll fall in love and cheat me. Well, I suppose I consent. What will you give? I'll give you Kaiser Wilhelm, the Tsar of Russia, George of England, and old Francis Joseph. That's two to one. Now, that's dishonest. You're always trying to unload a lot of monarchs on me when you know I don't want them. Why, when you play for them, you almost go to sleep, but I always win. No bargaining in kings, my dear. I'll give you a whole regiment of soldiers. Soldiers? What do you care about soldiers? L look at your figures again. You've been losing millions of soldiers in Europe for the last two years, and you're much more excited about these two rattle-pated young idiots. Your idea of a fair trade is to get something for nothing. You loved too much. With such covetousness, how can you ever know the thrill of chance? Oh, I'll give you anything. Enter youth with hanging, melancholy head. Shh! Too late. Here's one of them. Youth. You've tricked me. You were only playing for time. Come, sister, be game. All's fair in everything but the dice. And just think, if you win this cast, the other is half won. They'll meet, then. Uh, who are you? I am life. Oh, I am through with you. I want none of you. And, uh... Who are you? I am Death. Death? How different from my dream of you. I thought you were somber, austere, and instead you're, if I may say so, just a trifle commonplace. I'm not as young as I once was. One's figure, you know. Ah. <laughs> Look at her. A pleasing exterior, huh? And yet you wouldn't be seeking me if you didn't know better. Alas, my boy, beauty is not even skin deep. That is true. Ah, oh, death. I have been seeking you for weeks. Yes, I am always present. Where did you seek me? Hmm. Well, I tried poison, but just as I was about to swallow it, they snatched it from me. I tried to shoot myself. They cheated me. The pistol wouldn't go off. Well-meaning idiots. So, I came here to leap into the sea. Very good. O only hurry. Someone might come. Why do you wish to die? As if you didn't know. Did you not give me the power to string beautiful words into songs? Did you not give me love to sing to, and then take love away? I cannot sing any more. 
And yet you ask me why I want to die. I am not a slave. Slaves live just to eat and be clothed. You have plenty of them. Yes, I have plenty of them. If I cannot have love to warm me, I cannot create beauty. And if I cannot create beauty, I will not live. Are you sure it was love? I think it was only desire I gave you. You did not seem ready for love. <laughs> Falsehoods. Evasions. What is love, then? Uh, you gave me a girl who sold flowers on the street. She had hair like gold and a body all curves and rose white like marble. I sang my songs for her, and the whole world listened. And an ugly beast came and offered her gold, and she laughed at me and went away. That is love, my boy. <laughs> you are lucky to find it out so young. Now I know it was desire. Why will she persist in lying? I am a sport and a gentleman, and I must admit that life is as truthful as I am. Listen, youth, and answer me. Did your sweetheart understand your songs? Why should she? Women do not have to understand. They must be beautiful and fragrant, like flowers. And is that all? I do not know many women. <laughs> I will show you one who understands your songs. She is coming here. To leap into the sea, like you. Because she is lonely, waiting for you. For me? But I do not know her. But she knows you, through your songs. And you have been seeking me for weeks. Are you to be fooled again by this tricky charlatan? You who have had enough of life? There is no place for cowards among the lofty dead. Oh, death, forgive me. Life, farewell. He stretches out his arms and turns towards the cliff. Hold! We must play first. Youth stands as he is, with outstretched arms as they play. So, now it is you who are asking me to play. Come, life, do me a favor. Give me this one, and the girl shall be yours. No. The game must be played. It is the law. They go to center stage and throw the dice. Death frowns and grumbles. I have won. <laughs> Youth drops his arms and turns slowly. <sighs> then I am to live. In spite of myself. Death, I have lost you. Life, I hate you. Without love, you are crueler than death. Soon the girl will be here. Then you will think me beautiful. That's the comedy of it. You probably will, you know. <sighs> promises, promises. Love comes but once. The girl rushes in. She almost runs into life, then suddenly recoils. Who are you? I am life. Oh, dear life, I must leave you. I cannot bear you any longer. You are so white and cold. What have you to complain of? Have I not given you fame and worship and wealth? What are all of these without love? What? You without love? How about those who stand at the stage door every evening and send you flowers and jewels? One of them shot himself because you stamped on his flowers. Believe me, my dear. That is all the love there is. Love? No. That was desire. Ah! Desire when they seek you. Love when you seek them. No, no. Love understands. They didn't. They wanted to buy me in order to destroy me. That is why I stamped on their flowers. Ah, the youth. Incurably sentimental. Good. I'm glad you did. Why? Who are you? I am youth. Youth? The poet? You? Oh, I know all your songs by heart. I have kissed every line. Always, when I dance, I try to dance them. But why are you here? He came to throw himself into the sea. Oh no, you must not. What would the poor world do without your beautiful songs? Do not be afraid, my dear. I have won. <sighs> Alas... Why did you want to die? 
His sweetheart left him. His sweetheart? So he loves someone. I don't believe you. How could any woman he loved, when he sings so sweetly? His songs meant nothing to her. Nothing? Oh, then she was not worth your love. She was like the men who wait for me at the stage door. She wanted to destroy you. Such is life, my dear young lady. Love is the destroyer, always. You are right. It is all a myth. Life, love, happiness. I must idealize someone, something, and then the bubble bursts and I am alone. No. If she could not understand, no one could understand. Oh, how wrong you are. I understand. Don't you believe me? I have danced all you have sung. Do you remember the bird calls? She dances. Youth watches with astonishment and growing delight. Oh, how beautiful. You do understand. You do. Oh, wings flash and soar when you dance. You skim the sea gloriously, lifting your quivering feathery breast against the sunny wind. Oh, dance again for me. Uh, dance my, my, my cloud flight. The loveliest of all. But I can never dance for you anymore. I came here to die. And you'd forgotten it already. Oh, you're all alike, you suicides. Life's shallowest little deceit fools you again. Well, you have seen through her and know her for what she is. But I have found youth. Yes, yes, and youth has found love. A real love at last. A love that burns like fire and flowers like the trees. You shall not die. And I will fight you for her. Love is stronger than death. Than life, you mean. Think of the great lovers of the world. Paola and Francesca, Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde. I, I claim them all. Who are you to set yourself up against such august precedents? Hm? You think he loves you? It is not you he loves, but your dancing of his songs. He is a poet, and therefore loves only himself. And his sweetheart, for lack of whom he was going to die. See, he has already forgotten her. As you will one day be forgotten. Why ask too much of me? I can only give happiness for a moment. But it is real happiness. Love, creation, unity with the tremendous rhythm of the universe. I can't promise it will endure. I won't say you will not someday be forgotten. What if it is himself he loves in you? That too is love. To be supremely happy for a moment, an hour, that is worth living for. Life offers you many things, I but one. She pours out the sunshine before you to make you glad. She sends the winter to chill your heart. She gives you love and desire and takes them away. She brings you warm quietness and kills it with hunger and anxiety. Life offers you many things, I but one. Come closer, tired heart, and hold out your weary hands. See what a pearl I offer to kings and beggars alike. Come, I will give you peace. Peace? Do you think I want peace? I, a dancer, a child of the whirling winds, do you think I would be blind to the sunlight, deaf to use music, to my sweet applause, dumb to laughter? All this joy that is in me, scattered in darkness, dust in my hair, in my eyes, on my dancing feet, and yet, and yet life is so cruel. My dearest, we will never leave one another. She is mine. Haven't you forgotten something? The game? It is half one. She too has found love. Ah, but in willing to die, she laid her life on the knees of the fates, so we must play for her. It is the law. Oh, I am not afraid to play. This time I have you, Death. Have me? Oh, nay, life. I am cleverer than you. On this game hangs the doom of both. Of both? 
You lie, Death. I have already won youth. He cannot die. <laughs> youth cannot die, you say? Uh, true. But the girl dies if I win. Isn't that so? Life nods. And if she dies, what then? He loves her, yet he cannot follow. Nay, he shall live forever mute, forever regretting his lost love, until you yourself will beg me to take him. Oh, Death, I, I beg of you. Oh, life on her knees to death. No, sister, I couldn't help you if I would. It is the law. Let us play. It is the law. They go to the center of stage and play. Oh, I have won again. Yes, curse the luck. But someday we'll play for those two again. And it will be my turn. Yes, yes, but we will have lived. Until then, Death, you are powerless. I fear you not, and I will guard her from you. Geniuses. Geniuses! <laughs> how brave, how strong, how beautiful is my lover! They go off with their arms about each other. Well, it was a good game after all. You see, that's the difference between you and me. You play to win. I play for the fun of the thing. But tell me, Life, why is it you make such a fuss over dreamers? and care so little for soldiers. Oh, soldiers don't matter one way or the other to me. But someday, the dreamers will chain you to the earth, and I will have the game all my way. That remains to be seen. But how about kings? Kings are my enemies. Do you remember how careless I was during the French Revolution? I've always had it on my conscience. And I think I'd feel better if I told you. Whenever I threw a good combination, I juggled the dice. I'm not surprised. Heavens, aren't women unscrupulous? And yet they call me unfair. Yeah, I suppose I've got to keep an eye on you. I warn you, I will stop at nothing. <laughs> By the way, what's the game tomorrow night? <laughs> a plague! And in that game, I regret to say, you haven't a chance in the world. Don't forget, I have science to help me. Science? Ah, a fool's toy. I sweep them all together in my net, the men of learning and the ones they try to cure. But remember that the sun, the blessed healing sun, still rises every morning. Oh, don't remind me of the sun. Exit death. Two hundred thousand, seventy-five, three hundred and ten. I must never let him know how much I mind losing soldiers. They are the flower of youth. There are dreamers among them. This has been Genesius Guild's classic drama on the air. Join us next time for more. Many thanks to those whose contributions have made this possible. For Suppressed Desires, the sound effects were by Misha Hooker. The music was Smiles, performed by Joseph C. Smith's orchestra and recorded way back in 1918. For The Game, the sound effects were by Mike Koenig, and the background music was by Royalty Free Music. The theme music for the entire program was Chopin's Waltz in A-flat major, opus 69, number one, performed by Olga Gurievich. Thanks especially to the performers whose voices you have been hearing on this broadcast. For suppressed desires, Matty Galati as Henrietta, Andrew Bruning as Stephen, Joe Vasquez as Mabel, and Kitty Israel as the narrator. For the game, Angela Rathman as Life, Mike Karen as Death, Andrew Calder as Youth, Brianna Gray as The Girl, and Kathy Calder as The Narrator. This is your host, Misha Hooker, signing off until next time. <laughs>